Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you are having a good weekend, and it certainly is great to be back on the air. I've had a a very good weekend, to say the least. Uh, My wife and I uh, went to a wedding yesterday, and we got to um, spend some great quality time with uh, friends of ours that that we don't get to see as often as we would like. And uh, a good friend of mine from college uh, got married yesterday, and I couldn't be any happier for him and his um, and for him and his uh, new wife. They are a um, very happy couple, to say the least. But uh, it's always good to be able to celebrate um, fun outings uh, with friends, uh, regardless of the occasion. So, um, anyways, uh, just to let you all know, we are almost um, at the end of uh, Tales from a Revolution, uh, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America by uh, James D. Rice. So, as we uh, move towards the end, I'm sure many of us are obviously wondering how is this going to uh, end. In other words, we have talked about a rebellion that took place. We've talked about how Governor Berkeley and his um, band of loyalist followers uh, were able to strike back and um, restore some order, given that 23 uh, dissidents were um, executed. I mean, we learned that uh, Nathaniel Bacon wasn't executed, but we learned that he died from uh, an internal uh, disease that took him. But at the same time, we've also learned about the rise and the fall of Governor William Berkeley. We've learned a lot of things that are interwoven. We've learned some things that we didn't think would be possible to learn about. It is fair to say that we have learned about some unpleasantries, especially knowing that Governor Berkeley has been recalled, was sent back to England. He never really got to tell his side of the story, and he sadly dies not long after uh, returning to England. So... In this uh, podcast segment, we're going to learn about um, how the Virginia colony um, survives in the post-Berkeley um, era, but we're also going to learn um, about um, some royalty. We're going to learn about um, whom uh, succeeds the current king of England, because, you know, monarchs don't live forever. And the reason why I think it's important that we learn about um, some uh, succession to the throne is because it's one thing for one monarch to step down or, in this case, pass away. But when a new monarch takes over, we have to wonder, how is that monarch going to uh, handle his or her affairs uh, pertaining to the, uh, to the country that he uh, governs, but in terms of how he oversees a colony 3,000 miles across the ocean. We will also learn uh, whether or not Jamestown will remain Virginia's uh, capital. You know, I have to wonder, even in the midst of a uh, terrible crisis that has unfolded, not just a, a crisis, but the burning of Jamestown, we have to wonder, will Jamestown recover long-term to where it might remain Virginia's capital 25 to 50 years after uh, Bacon's rebellion has taken place. So let's find out. Um, let's find out uh, more information. But then again, let's fasten our seatbelts and get and get the show on the road. So our first leadoff question: 
to uh, this uh, segment episode of Tales from a Revolution, Bacon's Rebellion and the Transformation of Early America is the following. Did other dissident figures emerge whom carried on the same radical principles, or I should say I radical ideals, as Nathaniel Bacon himself demonstrated? Well, I, I do believe it is fair to say that that answer ought to be yes. I mean, we we have learned that there were uh, men whom were already um, willing to carry on his mission, uh, those whom were uh, rebel followers uh, themselves who were within the greater inner circle, that is the greater uh, inner circle of uh, Bacon's um, mission. But we should also keep in mind that some of those men uh, that we learned about from the previous podcast um, were executed um, because of their um, actions in taking up uh, arms against uh, the government. But I should uh, remind you all that even in Maryland, because I know we talked about Maryland earlier uh, earlier on in this uh, podcast series and how Maryland had been facing issues. So even uh, to the north of us in Maryland, there are those um, dissidents whom are so um, fed up with the fact that the Calverts, being the prominent Catholic family in Maryland, given they don't like the fact that the uh, Calverts have made compromises with uh, Protestants, but they, they don't like the fact that, for these dissidents, they don't like the fact that, uh, that there are Catholics in Maryland. So in the end, uh, the dissidents in Maryland prevail by ousting the Calverts from power to where the Catholics, especially uh, those uh, who live in Maryland who are of Catholic faith, no longer have the means of practicing law. They have no, they have no rights in terms of holding office. They have really no rights whatsoever in participating in their uh, colony's uh, governmental affairs. This is another example of where religion, especially in the eyes of of a prominent forefather like Thomas Jefferson, later on down the road, he would often be remembered as saying, you know, religion was one of the greatest undoings of mankind. In other words, a lot of wars were fought over religion, and a lot of people's lives were lost all in the name of religion. You know, it wasn't just so much Catholics persecuting Protestants and Protestants persecuting Catholics. Uh, Protestants, you know, are persecuting Protestants, all because of different... Um, views uh, based upon their faith, uh, religion. I mean, it's a whole other story unto itself. But to sum it all up, there were countless people whom not only had access to power, but they also exercised voices of uh, disapproval regarding religion, but more so over whom reigned supreme, including uh, outsiders uh, standing in the way. So, in other words, we have a religious struggle on one side of the spectrum that centers upon God. I'm not a theologian, folks, but this is worth pointing out. Why is there a religious struggle centered upon God? How about this, if it um, helps better uh, clarify the question? Protestantism in the English nation, okay? For, the, for those uh, Protestants whom are uh, very centered, uh, their, their views are centered upon God, 
what does that necessarily entail? Their loyalties to that of the Anglican Church, a.k.a. the Church of England. If you are loyal to the Church of England, then you know that God reigns supreme. You know that you must uh, follow all of God's uh, doctrines. In other words, you must adhere to the, um, to the, book, of, uh, the book of King James, or, or what we would think of as the Book of Common Prayer. And in England, you know, since the time King Henry VIII um, broke away from the Church of England, England has been the forefront leader in, uh, in terms of leading nation in Europe in terms of um, upholding all things Protestant. However, we will probably come to some realization at some point in this podcast that there still are uh, religious struggles in England, not so much from a Protestant standpoint, but rather more so between Protestant and Catholicism. Now, the, no the next example I can give you um, here that pertains to this question is Satan. Of course, when we think of Satan, we think of um, unpleasant things. In this sense, with regards to Satan, there are those who refer to uh, the Pope. You know, uh, when I think of the Pope, I think of uh, the Pope uh, in Vatican, in what's called Vatican City. To those whom are against the Catholic Church, obviously on the side of Protestantism, they see the Pope as an example of Satan. They don't like the fact that there's one man, being that of the Pope, who is so powerful that he can um, use his um, indomitable will to force his um, beliefs and views over thousands of people below whom don't have any say. But it's not so much a question over whether or not they have say, but it's the fact that the power is placed into the hands of a few and that, um, that the uh, Catholic Church, you know, the Pope representing the, ca the greater Catholic Church faith, you know, the Church itself is controlling everything, you know, the land controlling uh, doctrines as to what is to be taught, what is not to be taught, and if anybody um, challenges the Catholic Church's hierarchy or authority behind um, uh, doctrines of uh, teaching, then those people sadly can be executed, they could be, uh, you know, sent to jail. So that is why those whom are against the Catholic Church view the Pope as a form of us, uh, as someone who would fall under the category of Satan. There are also, we also have the French. Why the French? Because the French are a part of um, the greater um, institution behind supporting Catholicism. The vast majority of France is Catholic. And a good example here would be um, 1685, um, Louis XIV of France. He revoked what was called the Edict of Nantes that had been put into place back in 1598. The Edict of Nantes allowed French Huguenots, being Protestant um, worshipers, to um, worship freely, to be able to um, participate in the government. The Edict, or I should say decree, allowed these um, minority religious sects, like the French Huguenots, the right to, um, to be free from unnecessary, uh, cruel, and unusual punishments, in this case religious persecutions. Sadly, in 1685, Louis XIV revokes the Edict of Nantes and persecutes French Huguenots 
left and right like there's no tomorrow. Many of them were forced to um, flee their homes um, in terror. Many were jailed. Many died. But there were a handful of French Huguenots that survived and escaped and came to the New World. Uh, a few good examples of um, of people who were French Huguenots, and of course their names became anglicized. How about Paul Revere? Paul Revere's family originally was referred to, in terms of last name, as Revoir, Revere. But coming to America, they... Um, they Anglic their name their last name became anglicized to where we know it is Revere. Francis Marion, uh, who was a prominent uh, officer in the Southern Campaign of the Revolutionary War, his family's original last name was Emerion. So his family, like that of Paul Revere's, were a victim of the Edict of Nantes, of of the uh, revoking of the Edict of Nantes to where they uh, were forced to flee not only for their safety, but coming to the New World to um, be able to avoid unnecessary religious persecutions. Then you have uh, the Jesuits and the Indians whom were viewed as Satan because the Jesuits were on, Amer on, on New World territory, most notably in North America, trying to convert um, Indians into um, the Catholic faith. And the Jesuits uh, were trying to um, institute um, practices of Catholicism where Catholicism could still have its um, presence established in the New World. And besides France, you have Spain as well. Spain is another Catholic institution that is trying to um, make its um, presence not only known in the New World, but in terms of uh, religious authority. So here we have France, Spain, and England all establishing settlements in the New World from North America, Central, and South America, but it's also in the name of religion. And for those uh, nations, what is their objective with the Indians? Well, for the French and the Spanish, they want to convert those Indians into Catholicism. For the English, it's all about converting the Indians into Christianity, where they will believe in only one God. It's a never-ending battle over whom reigned supreme at home. Hence, England, France, and Spain, not only at home, but abroad in North, South America, Central America, and the Caribbean. So we have to be reminded of the fact that, yes, it's, it, it, it is fascinating to learn about these um, settlements and how the Spanish, the French, and the English were able to establish settlements in the New World, but we also have to be reminded that there were consequences for those settlements. And if I tell you too much now, there may not be a point in uh, telling you uh, other stuff down the road. It was one thing for Nathaniel Bacon and his rebel followers to have removed uh, William Berkeley and the Council of State regarding political injustices and grievances that they felt um, had been um, bestowed upon them without any formal consent. You know, yes, there are those whom will never be satisfied. Yes, there are those whom can take matters into their own hands and do something that is, in our eyes, in today's world, might be viewed as undemocratic. However, we should keep in mind that just because Nathaniel Bacon and his followers removed William Berkeley in the Council of State. And yes, it was one thing for them to go about burning Jamestown, 
But just because a governing official gets ousted from office doesn't automatically mean that whomever takes over will govern better, or let alone establishing a new governing institution that would bring broad-range support amongst the greater population, and in this case, an English colony. Bacon's agenda, folks, what was it about? It only centered upon him and his followers. There would be no means of improving or making amends to outsiders, like Indians, whom saw their alliances disrupted by means of violence. Violence, or I should say action that was never authorized under Governor Berkeley's discretion. In other words, Nathaniel Bacon, folks, he's the man whom takes everything into his own hands. He has no respect for authority. He has no respect for for laws. He has no respect for who's in um, power. It's all about him. It's, it's his way or the doorway. So just keep in mind, folks, that yes, and history has shown us that just because someone gets ousted from power, it doesn't mean that everything is going to be for the better all the time. There are some nations in this world who know nothing else than dictatorship, or I should say dictatorial style of rule, because it's the only way that the dictators can keep the uh, factions together. Because in, in those cases, without dictators, then it becomes mob rule. Yes, dictatorships are not the best form of governing, but but in some instances, it's the only way to keep um, the masses together. But in this case, in Virginia, we don't need a dictator. The, you know, I think, wouldn't it have been fair to say that the, that the King of England didn't want a dictator? No. But could it be fair to say that perhaps the King of England, being King Charles II, didn't like Nathan, did not like William Berkeley? Yes. And look what happens. How long did King Charles II stay on the throne following what had already transpired in Virginia between 1676 and 1677? Roughly close to 10 years, Charles II died on February the 6th of 1685. He died unexpectedly. Uh, historians do know that his death was most likely from internal medical problems he had faced leading up to his passing. He was replaced by his brother, James. And we're going to learn some stuff about James here in a moment. Uh, stuff that I did not know. Because the only James that I have ever known in terms of King James was uh, King James whom uh, took over for his cousin, Queen Elizabeth I, when she died back in 1603. But this James went by James II as well as James VII. He was referred to as James II as the um, ruler of Ireland and England, James VII of Scotland. Although the Protestant Reformation first began well before 1607, uh, the year of Jamestown's establishment, believe it or not, folks, uh, Catholicism's presence in England never got fully extinguished. I was always under the assumption that uh, when Queen Mary I um, ruled England, she, you know, she tried to restore Catholicism to England, and as all of us know, that we get that beverage, Bloody Mary, uh, after um, Queen Mary I, because, you know, she persecuted Protestants vigorously, um, left and right like there was no tomorrow, 
until she was uh, removed from the throne, but she was very, very determined to uh, make England a uh, Catholic um, nation. But it just so happens, folks, that James II slash James VII, believe it or not, was the last Catholic monarch to ever preside over those three nations, England, Scotland, and Ireland. But his reign was very, very short-lived. He ruled only from February of 1685 until December 23, 1688. He was ousted from power under the Glorious Revolution. It would just so turn out that his successors were a husband and wife whom co-reigned from 1689 to 16 from 1689 to 1694 but the husband's reign would last until 1702 king william the 3rd and mary the 2nd there's a college uh, not far from where i live it's in williamsburg and i'm sure most of you all know where i'm where i'm going to be coming to next the college of william and mary it's named after king william the 3rd and queen mary the 2nd Believe it or not, there is a county in Virginia, uh, not far from where I live. It's called uh, King William County. And then there's King and Queen County. Well, where do you think that is coming from, folks, when there's uh, King William County? Is it after King William III? Yes. King and Queen? After King William III and Queen Mary II. Before attaining uh, the title of King, of King uh, William's title was uh, Prince of Orange. And there is a county in Virginia called Orange County, so I'm sure that it has to be connected um, with uh, royalty in uh, England. Now, believe it or not, folks, it does turn out that William and Mary were related. But then again, most of ro royalty is related to one another. So uh, William and Mary are cousins. They married in 1677. Mary was the oldest daughter of William's maternal uncle, being that of uh, King James. King James was the Duke of York and just so happened to be Charles II's younger brother. Now, let me ask you this. Is William, is he Protestant or Catholic? He's Protestant. In 1688, he participated in the glorious revolution that led to the ousting, or I should say the ouster of his maternal uncle, James Seventh. And the second, it is hard to believe that there are family members, or I should say relatives, within royalty who are willing to ouster an uncle or an aunt from power, who are willing to participate in the greater cause. And what did it involve, folks? It, involved, it pertained to religion. Obviously, William is not a big fan of uh, Catholicism. And yes, family members... Relatives will do whatever it takes to not only obtain um, access to power, but if it means removing an extended family member from power because he or she has different uh, religious alliances or different um, religious uh, principles, then yes, they'll do whatever it takes to uh, see to it that they attain power, even if it means removing someone from within the inner circle. Did uh, King William and uh, Queen Mary have any children? Uh, no, they didn't. 
Mary died in uh, 1694. William would die eight years later in 1702. So, okay, if they have no children, who's going to succeed them? In other words, who's going to uh, be the next in line to take the throne? Well, it just so happens that a, a fellow gal by the name of Anne, whom was the daughter of James II and the Seventh, would be next in line to succeed um, King William III and Queen Mary II. Anne was brought up Anglican. She was the sister of Queen Mary II, William's wife. Anne um, had a very, very um, tough life. And what I mean by tough life is that um, she was never able to produce a child that would one day take her place on the throne. There is a, a, a large portrait of Queen Anne at the, um, at the Capitol building in uh, Colonial Williamsburg on Duke of Gloucester Street. It's on the first, um, yeah, it's in the first floor of the uh, courthouse. And I say courthouse because when court was in session in uh, the Capitol building in Williamsburg in Colonial Times, that's where all the felony cases were held. There is another courthouse on uh, Duke of Gloucester Street, but that's where the um, misdemeanor offenses um, or misdemeanor cases would be held. But nonetheless, in the courthouse in the Capitol building on Williamsburg's famed Duke of Gloucester Street, there is a picture of Queen Anne. She, um, she was pregnant roughly 17 times, folks. She miscarried at least 12 times. Although five children survived childbirth, Four out of those five children died before the age of two. Her only surviving child, whom had the title of Duke of Gloucester, died at age 11 on July 30th of 1700. Very sad, to say the least, to think that she never was able to produce a child whom lived long enough to be able to succeed her on the throne. She died on August the 1st of 1714, without leaving an heir to the throne. So whom succeeded Anne? She was succeeded by George I, her second cousin, the House of Hanover. Of course, when I think of um, all the King Georges, the one that comes to my mind as being the most famous of them all was King George III. It just so, hap it just so happens that Queen Elizabeth II is related to uh, King George III. It, it, if I'm not mistaken, it is her great-great-great-grandfather, three generations removed. So it just so happens, folks, that uh, Queen Anne was directly related to, um, to the uh, kings that would come after her, being George I, George II, and eventually George III, but her second cousin was uh, George I. What I think is also worth pointing out that pertains to Queen Anne is the following. For those of you who live north of Virginia and Maryland, what is Maryland's capital? Annapolis. It just so happens that Annapolis, being Maryland's capital, was named in honor of Queen Anne, James II's Protestant daughter. Now, prior to Annapolis becoming the capital, the previous capital was St. Mary's City. And it just so happens that uh, St. Mary's City was a Catholic stronghold, 
obviously that uh, benefited the Calvert family. Annapolis was re the capital was relocated uh, well north of St. Mary's City to uh, Annapolis. And the reason for it was because it was viewed as a better site for uh, Protestant authority. So we have to keep in mind that just because a capital relocates it, we shouldn't always assume that it's being relocated because of uh, security purposes. In terms of in better inland protection, sometimes capitals are relocated all in the name of um, religious um, supremacy, all in the name of um, who reigns supreme over uh, one religion over the other. After all, is it fair to say that even as we are making our way from the end of the uh, 17th century and into the 18th century, that there are plenty of uh, Protestants, most notably Anglicans, and or just in general, whom are fearful of what uh, the practice of Catholicism is all about? Yes. Well, did Jamestown, uh, Virginia's capital, remain as Virginia's capital uh, going into the start of the 18th century? Do any of you all believe that Jamestown did remain as Virginia's capital uh, by the time 1700 rolls around and just right after? No. In 1698, a fire burned down the statehouse complex. Leadership unanimously agreed that it was time to relocate the seat of government to a new site being Middle Plantation. Now, it was, as a matter of fact, a matter of fact folks, it was um, on, on October the 20th of 1698 that Jamestown State House, being its capital building, burned. And it burned for the fourth time. Middle Plantation would often be the alternative meeting place for the government whenever something bad took place at Jamestown, especially when uh, when Jamestown burnt uh, in 1676. I do believe that it would be fair to say that for a period of time that, um, that government officials did convene at Middle Plantation, although Governor Berkeley uh, did spend most of his time along the eastern shore in terms of, uh, for protection purposes. But throughout uh, the history of Middle Plantation, that um, site uh, often would serve as an um, alternative meeting place for the government, most notably uh, given that we've just learned that Jamestown has burned on more than one occasion. So what I found even more interesting was that whom would be the one to actually advise the government to relocate from Jamestown to Williamsburg, or what we now know as Williamsburg today. It turns out that about five William and Mary students submitted a solid proposal, meaning a strong proposal, convincing the legislature, a.k.a. the House of Burgesses, to approve relocation of government from Jamestown to Middle Plantation. The students, folks, really did their homework here. Sometimes we almost have to wonder, do the students know more than the government uh, leaders? The students advised, the cap advised that, that relocating the capital would decrease exposure to malaria and mosquitoes, which had plagued Jamestown's uh, peoples. And this can easily be traced back to uh, around the time 1607, not long, 1607, 1608, 
uh, when they uh, decide when the um, settlers were convinced that if they um, docked their uh, ship in um, in the furthest point of the James River, they thought they would be safe from a, a Spanish um, surprise attack. They thought they would be um, immune from Indian attacks. But what they didn't realize is that they um, were docking in in the worst part of the James River. Why is that? Because deadly bacteria in the water would form. Brackish water. In other words, they were drinking salt water. And it led to unpleasantries like uh, a whole host of diseases like malaria that killed a bunch of the uh, settlers in the first year after having... Um, first settled in uh, what we now know as Jamestown. So so the students are definitely right in that if we relocate to um, better ground, we won't have to deal with as much exposure to malaria and mosquitoes. Think about it. Jamestown's on uh, a body of water, and when you're right along a body of water, are you going to be exposed or is there going to be a greater likelihood of being exposed to diseases like uh, malaria? Yes. Another thing that uh, the students were convinced would help um, the relocation aspect of this was that uh, the students had advised that Middle Plantation provided access to two deep water creeks, giving option for multiple uh, rivers. In other words, these deep water creeks would um, enable um, better uh, passageways. So by being a little bit further inland, there was just uh, there would be greater means of hope and maybe for uh, prosperity and less likelihood of having to worry about such um, unpleasantries as a capital building burning more than once. The William and Mary students did get broad support from uh, leaders like Reverend Dr. James Blair, who would go on to become the College of William and Mary's uh, first uh, president. Governor Sir Francis Nicholson also approved of what the uh, five William and Mary students had done. So the relocation proposal got broad unanimous support from all of the House of Burgess members, and come 1699, the Virginia colony capital relocated to Middle Plantation. During this, and during that same time, the capital was relocated. Middle Plantation got renamed Williamsburg by Governor Nicholson in honor of King William III. Williamsburg would remain as Virginia's capital until 1780 when Governor Thomas Jefferson and the legislature voted unanimously to relocate to relocate the capital westward to Richmond for internal safety purposes. Uh, for those of you who were with me when I uh, talked about uh, the books like I Am Murdered, you know, about George Wythe's death, as well as Jack Jewett's uh, ride that saved Virginia, uh, if, for those of you who want to learn more about why the capital was uh, located westward to Richmond, uh, those would be uh, two books I would strongly recommend reading, or and let alone listening to uh, podcasts that I had done um, a while back. Whatever uh, became of Nathaniel Bacon's estate, uh, Curl's plantation, in the years after his uh, rebellion had taken place? Did anybody purchase it? Nope. 
Uh, Curls endured many years of neglect and vandalism before eventually going up into flames. The estate um, burned around 1700. What do you know? Around the same time that uh, Williamsburg officially became Virginia's uh, new capital. Believe it or not, folks, uh, remnants of Bacon's estate remained untouched for close to three centuries. What was left of Bacon's estate, the remnants that was, were buried in rubble until the 1980s when they were excavated by archaeologists. And in the years after Bacon's death, had other groups of peoples been totally displaced? Yes. Most notably, um, Indians, through means of war, illegal land transactions by white settlers, and tragically disease. This is a very, very unfortunate thing. You know, as much as I enjoy learning about history, I have to be reminded that, yes, there are unpleasantries. I think it's probably fair to say that there have been unpleasantries since the beginning of time pertaining to uh, history, but we must keep in mind that, sadly, uh, for all of the uh, success or successes that took place in establishing uh, settlements in the New World, that is, European settlements, there were those whose lives were never the same, although there were alliances, but alliances alone between uh, European nations and Indians did not last forever. It would only be a matter of time before those alliances would be completely severed. Governor Nicholson of Virginia oversaw the widespread dispossession of one Indian nation following another. The Chickahominies, the, the Nenzaticos, and other tribal nations lost ancestral lands, not only through illegal uh, land sales, but most notably disease. It should be worth pointing out that Prior to 1607, uh, you know, the Indians had never had any contact with such diseases like smallpox, malaria. But once uh, Europeans arrived into the New World, and not just uh, in North America, but most notably even in South America and Central America as well, Indian populations, their numbers declined drastically, and it wasn't through means of just war. Although war was a part of why their populations declined, but it was all in the means of disease. The Indians had no um, immunity towards smallpox. They had no immunity towards uh, malaria, yellow fever, dysentery. Once they were exposed to it, they never recovered. Their numbers just plummeted. So, smallpox, yes, wiped out vast numbers of Indian people whom had no immunity to uh, not only this disease, but to other diseases that had not existed on their ancestral lands prior to European arrival. There was an epidemic of smallpox in 1696 in Jamestown and, and within the outlying areas, and as a result of this epidemic, only four Indian nations remained intact along the James River, ten nations along the western shore, and nine along the eastern shore. Only 1,400 Native American peoples were left as the 17th century ended. 1,400, folks, that's a very, very 
um, sobering number, and I'll say this here because prior, because around 1607, the year when the English arrived to the New World and established Jamestown, do you want to know how many Indian peoples made up the uh, Powhatan Confederacy? 14,000. At least 14,000 or just over. But within 100 years, just shy of 100 years, relations between English and Indians constantly fluctuated, largely due to cultural differences. I think one example might be over uh, the use of land. Yes, the Indians in, um, along the, um, within the Powhatan Confederacy nation, they grew tobacco, but they, but they weren't addicted to it. They knew how to practice crop rotation better than perhaps the Europeans, or I should say rather the English. The Indians grew tobacco only when necessary. They uh, used it for ceremonial purposes, but it was a rougher scent of tobacco. As for the uh, English, they were desperate because they had tried so many other things and failed in terms of um, bringing, uh, in terms of producing uh, goods that would yield long-term profits. Finally, John Rolfe is their savior and that he introduces uh, a form of uh, tobacco that would be um, a much sweeter form of uh, tobacco that he got from, uh, he brought from Spain into Virginia. And once it began uh, growing, and once the results were, were you know, visible, people uh, became addicted. They took on to this uh, new um, experiment. And yes, tobacco was Virginia's lucrative cash crop. Tobacco did a lot of wonders. But what did tobacco do, folks? It depleted the soil. So what happens after three or four plantings? You need new land. And more often than not, who are you going to come into confrontation, conflict with over the land? The natives. The natives don't believe in being addicted to one crop. We'll grow tobacco, but we'll only grow it when, when it's necessary. So this is where the English probably didn't fully reinvent themselves. Yes, they grew corn. They grew other um, vegetable necessities. But what was the lucrative crop again, folks? Tobacco. So the problem is, is that with these cultural differences, you, you have war. And not only do you have war, but you have displacement of uh, tribes. And you also have uh, dis not only just displacement of tribes where they're forced off their lands, but in many instances, these Indians were sold into slavery. In other words, their tribes were broken up, all because of not only war, disease, but um, but in terms of illegal uh, land transactions upon ancestral lands that resulted in uh, Indians being displaced permanently. But to me, I think the biggest tra travesty of it all was what um, was what happened by the time 1676 comes around. But we should keep in mind that prior to 1674. In the years before Nathaniel Bacon arrived, yes, things may not have always been 100% perfect, but they were perfect enough to where the peace was preserved. Yes, Nathan yes, William Berkeley, or I should say Governor William Berkeley, did 
promised the indentured servants like John Ingram a hundred acres of land after X number of years of hard work. But that promise was broken simply in part because Governor Berkeley did not want a third Anglo-European war, a third um, Anglo-Indian war breaking out because there had already been two and they had been pretty disastrous. Two tries to wipe out the Europeans once and for all in, in Virginia. They came close. So what does Governor Berkeley need to do? He needs to basically come up with a, a plan not only to prevent war, but to ensure that there will be some peace, not just short-term, but long-term. So the peace that existed for just shy of a quarter of a century, while well, yes, it prospered, but sadly it was forever altered by Nathaniel Bacon and his rebel followers, whom couldn't handle success from those within who wanted the peace versus further conflict. What did Nathaniel Bacon and his uh, band of rebel followers not like? They didn't like the fact that, that, that Governor Berkeley and his inner circle, in their eyes, they felt that the, that the governor and his inner circle were favoring the Indians, that they were giving the Indians more benefits than their own people. This is a, a great example of uh, where politics doesn't always, in today's world, doesn't always make people happy. But then again, it's probably been this way since the beginning of time with politics. I mean, you're going to please one group of people, but you're never going to be able to please the other group. So sadly, Nathaniel Bacon and his followers took matters into their own hands and tried to um, destroy um, government in Virginia. They tried to destroy government to the point to where the first democratic uh, governing body, being that of the General Assembly that was formed in 1619, might not even exist again. It is a blessing that, that Nathaniel Bacon died when he did, but the greater tragedy was that Governor William Berkeley was never the same person. Yes, Governor Berkeley had his own shortcomings, but he was really the last best hope in terms of keeping whatever peace had been, had been in place for just a little over a quarter of a century. And that peace was very, very successful to where nobody in their wildest dreams thought that someone from within his own government would challenge him to the point to where everything that had been achieved was now all taken away. This is what happens when power is placed into um, the wrong hands. This is what happens when people abuse power. And it is fair to say that, um, that crabs in a barrel are not always confined to the lower classes of society, that crabs in a barrel are confined to the upper ranks of society, even from within the uppermost ranks of, of a governing institution. Well, we've covered a lot of ground in this uh, podcast uh, episode, and when I'm on the air again next, we're going to be uh, going into the uh, epilogue of Tales from a Revolution, prologue being the beginning and epilogue the end. Well, thank you for your time as always, and I look forward to being back on the air again next, and thank you once again for being such ardent listeners. Uh, no matter where you all live, uh, continue to stay safe and continue to get the word out uh, with podcasting. If you know of people who want to uh, podcast, tell them to come to Anchor. It's free. The opportunities are limitless. And once they get going, 
the results go beyond the sky's ceiling. Thank you again, and take care, and have a great upcoming week.